Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 49 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. episode, I speak to Clark W. Phobes. Now, Clark is world-renowned as a barrel and mouthpiece manufacturer, along with other accessories, but you might not know he's also an active player in the San Francisco Bay Area and has even recorded movie soundtracks. Clark shares many, many interesting details about his barrels, mouthpieces, and even some upcoming products, which I'm really excited about. Um, He also goes into depth about his new 10K mouthpiece and explains to us what it's like to record movie soundtracks in studio. One of the things that really struck me about this interview, other than its length, that actually clocks in to be the longest clarinet episode yet at over an hour and a half, but also Clark's really uh, incredible passion, dedication, and also belief in his products. Clark actually believes so much in his products that if you're a qualified teacher, you may be eligible to try his debut mouthpiece free of charge with one of your students and your studio. If you'd like to learn more about this offer, please see the show notes at clarineat.com, and this offer is also ongoing on Clark's website. Please note that it is only valid for continental United States residents. The Clarineat podcast is made possible in part by the support of its listeners. Today, I'd like to thank our latest Patreon backer, John. I'd also like to thank those who have donated using the donate button on the website, and also those who are doing their Amazon shopping through our referral links. This is perhaps the best way to help out the podcast, since there's no additional cost to you. You simply do your shopping as normal, and a small percentage goes towards the ongoing production of the show. If you'd like to learn how you can help out the Clarinet podcast, please visit www.clarinet.com support. Your help is very much appreciated and will help ensure that I can continue this show into the future for as long as possible. Of course, today's episode is also brought to you by our sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Thanks so much for listening. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. So I'm here today with Clark W. Phobes, who is, of course, the uh, world-famous mouthpiece and barrel manufacturer, but also an active player in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, how did you get started with your career, and uh, how do you maintain such an active playing schedule while you do continue to manufacture your products? Well, I moved uh, here in 1981 to uh, go to school at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, and at that time, I was moving from Fresno, where I'd been an instrument repairman for five years. So I moved here with, you know, uh, a set of skills and uh, to, to back me up in case the playing didn't work out. But I was very fortunate that first year at the conservatory that I was hired for uh, three operas in the uh, San Francisco uh, opera season. And so I immediately sort of started this a duo career of of playing and well at that time I wasn't repairing instruments I was just working on my master's degree Uh, but through that entree then I was eventually hired by the symphony as an extra player and the ballet as an extra player 
And I've maintained those contacts for 35 years. And uh, I still play pretty actively with all those groups. In fact, this week I'll be playing with the San Francisco Ballet. And you don't just play soprano clarinet. You actually are an active doubler. Yeah, I, uh, it's interesting. When I moved here in San Francisco to San Francisco, I, with the opera, I did initially play a lot of clarinet, but people found out that I was a very good bass clarinet player pretty quickly. And I started doing a lot of bass clarinet playing. In fact, I was in the finals for the bass clarinet job with the Met Opera Orchestra in 1986. And then two months later, I was the runner up for uh, the bass clarinet position in the Cincinnati Symphony. I ended up never winning a job, but I think that those orchestras did me a favor because I really love living in San Francisco. And uh, anyway, but yes, I I do double. Recently, I played E-flat clarinet with the San Francisco uh, uh, Symphony. When there was recording work here, I was also playing uh, the uh, contrabass bass clarinet chair at Skywalker Ranch Studios. What is it about San Francisco that you love so much? You know, it's just, to me, it's still the most beautiful city in the world that I've visited. And uh, it's just, I like living on the coast. I can see the ocean from my house. Uh, I do like the weather here. I don't mind the fog too much in the summer. It's a very cosmopolitan city. Uh, we have three great orchestras here, the, the symphony, the opera, and the ballet orchestra. And there's just so much going on culturally. We have great museums. Uh, you know, there's very, uh, there's just so much going on here culturally. There's great food. As you probably know, I'm a big foodie and a wine collector, and we're very close to the wine country. So uh, this has really just been a fabulous place for me to live. Yeah, as far as the wine and stuff, there's really no better place. Uh, well, maybe Burgundy, France, which I go to every summer too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In America anyways, maybe. And, yeah, that's, that's it. So that's amazing. Um, you mentioned on your bio that you've played in some movie soundtracks. Is there any that would come to mind that people would recognize? I think one of the most memorable was a very goofy movie called Mars Attacks. Do you remember that movie? I have seen that. Yes, with, I have. With Jack Nicholson. Yeah. So uh, I played the entire score on that. And what was memorable is that I played uh, B-flat clarinet, E-flat clarinet, bass clarinet, E flat contra alto and B flat contra bass at the same time. So, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of switching around, of course. So was that like? Are you saying that you layered some pieces, or was it just constant switching back and forth? Constant switching back and forth. You wow. The way that the uh, when you record uh, for, when you do a recording session, they will re- record you know small uh, sets, mm-hmm. and each each particular uh, section may have bass clarinet switching to contra bass clarinet or clarinet switching to bass clarinet. It's rare that within one take that you have to play more than two instruments. So let's talk a little bit more about that. The film aspect really interests me. What is that like? Would you sort of walk me through what a session is, is like at the studio for a movie? So the thing that's different about playing a, a recording session than playing in an orchestra is you do, you do not get the music ahead of time. So it's really sight reading. Some sessions, um, can, you know, the music is fairly easy. Uh, if you're playing something like uh, John, a John Williams score, the music can be quite hard. And essentially what you do is, uh, you may, depending on the conductor, you may have a read-through where everybody just plays their part without recording it, but there's no rehearsing per se. 
It's just you need to be able to sit down and have the skills to sight read and make it sound good. And so uh, but on the other hand, there can be multiple takes of um, each section. So uh, you do have several chances to get it right. Like, is it as cutthroat as people say it is? I always hear these sort of horror stories about, you know, a mistake in well, route kind of thing. Yeah, I think uh, because recording scene here in San Francisco is so small compared to Los Angeles that it's not it's not the same type of scene. Uh, there is one contractor that was doing all the movie work up here, and she essentially tried to hire first the San Francisco Symphony, and if they if players in the San Francisco Symphony could not make it, then she would try to hire people from either the opera or the ballet, mm. and then there would be a few people like me that are extras that would get called. So um, it's actually very very friendly up here. Do you, uh, I suppose you would watch along with the screen then as the conductor conducts? Do you have to wear headphones? No, you wear, you wear headphones for a click track. You do not, the screen is behind you. You don't want that distraction. So the conductor sees the screen, but you don't. Conductor, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, um, they, they have it down to a science and conductor actually has, is a, has the click track going in his head too, as well as there's a signal that goes across the movie screen that shows where the music should line up so it's it's quite technical as you play then i mean click tracks i always find quite bothersome especially when i'm playing clarinet can you hear what you're doing properly with the headphones on or do you learn to accommodate for that do you have a monitor well <clears throat> you what you do is it, you have a headphone that um you essentially have a speaker on one side and the other side is open oh, okay so and you can decide whether you want to listen to the speaker in your right ear or your left ear. It's up to you. So uh, you can hear, but you also get um, some of the orchestra in along with the click track, but then you have this uh, open ear that you're actually listening to the ensemble around you. It is a little disconcerting when you first do it, but you get used to it. Yeah. I mean, especially in an orchestra setting where like you're used to, you know, for the second clarinet player or whatever, listening left. I mean, and then you plug up your right ear. I mean, it seems yeah, very it's strange. A, it's, well, so the way I do it is because I'm usually sitting on the end. I'm playing bass clarinet is that I have the the headphone speaker in my right ear. And so then I can listen left. And mm-hmm. that works well. So when you go, did you go to the movie when it came out then or the movies when they come out? Well, some of them. You know, some of them I'm not interested in. I remember we did Inspector Gadget. I wasn't really interested in seeing that. <laughs> uh, we did some touch-ups on Jurassic Park 3. Oh, wow. Uh, of course, I did see that. And, uh, you know, I, I, would, I, I don't even remember. Um, I think we did Ratatouille, Ratatouille or whatever that, that uh, movie is about the rat that goes to Paris. Yeah, I remember that. I never saw that movie. Um, I, I, would, I, I generally don't go to movies, so yes, no, I did not. <laughs> so you play on them sometimes, but you don't go as much. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it must be so interesting, though, to sit there and, you know, you're watching the film and hearing yourself playing clarinet if, if you do go. Yeah, so. it's, actually, there is a, a one movie where you can usually, for example, in Mars Attacks, there's so much other noise and explosions going on that you can't really hear the orchestra that much. <laughs> but... Uh, um, <clears throat> I did uh, I did a really creepy science fiction movie, uh, and I cannot remember the name of it, but it has something to do with um, human beings that get infected with some kind of a virus, and they turn into um, vampire-like 
giant cockroaches. Oh wow, <laughs> that's very strange. It, it had it had three iterate it had two iterations, but I played on the first one, which had a big contrabass clarinet solo, and mm. uh, that was kind of fun. Well, not many clarinet players have to deal with uh, gigantic cockroaches and explosions <laughs> yeah. competing with their music. Luckily, so that's a yeah. what an interesting interesting uh, thing to be doing, though. Wow. So how did you segue from, you developed an interest in mouthpieces when you began your career in the early 80s, um, but how does an interest in researching mouthpieces or wanting to learn about mouthpieces lead to producing over 10,000 over the next 30 years? I did a little bit of quick math, actually, and if you made a mouthpiece every single day for those 30 some odd years, that would be about the right number. So that's a lot of work. Well, what what happened, the genesis of getting involved in mouthpieces is that I, I had a business repairing instruments, uh, which became primarily clarinets. <clears throat> so when I moved to San Francisco in 1981, uh, after that first fall season with the opera, I and I was still in school. I still had to do something to make a living. So I started working for a, uh, a firm called the Woodwind and Brasswind Workshop, and which we often were confused with the Woodwind and the Brasswind. But uh, it was a, it was a um, highly specialized repair shop in San Francisco, the, by far the best uh, repair shop in the Bay Area at that time. And I worked for a, a gentleman named Erwin Berger, who was a uh, bassoonist and bas- very fine bassoon repairman. I worked there for three years, but then I became so active in my freelancing that I just couldn't keep up the schedule they wanted. So I quit. And then I started my own business uh, about three years later in uh, 1980, uh, three months later in 1985. And so just as part of repairing instruments, people would occasionally bring me mouthpieces and say, you know, can you touch this up or, you know, is this fixable? And uh, my best friend at the time was uh, Greg Dufford. He still is my best friend, but he was the bass clarinetist with the San Francisco Opera Orchestra. And Greg was very interested in mouthpiece making. In fact, he made me a bass clarinet mouthpiece that I played for about 15 years. And uh, he showed me his techniques and and what he did, and I just became very interested in it and started just experimenting and, um, you know, refacing mouthpieces for people and eventually thought this is this is something I like to do. And uh, I decided to start making mouthpieces um, as as part of my repair business. I think the first year that I actually, you know, said that I was a mouthpiece maker was probably around 1987 or 1988. So once you start working on the mouthpiece, there, there are many parts of the mouthpiece which you can sort of affect with various adjustments. Um, how, how do you decide which areas to work on and what sort of happens when you change those areas? Well, that, you know, is, that's, that is the craft of mouthpiece making. I think that there are plenty of guys that can learn how to put a nice facing on a mouthpiece, but really the, I, I don't want to denigrate the, the, the art of mouthpiece refacing or, um, you know, what it takes to put a good facing on, on a mouthpiece. But really, from my work, <clears throat> that's only about 10%. The, what's, what's really interesting about uh, mouthpiece acoustics is what's going on inside the mouthpiece. And there's nothing written about it. I did a lot of research and I tried to, you know, find anything that was written about it. And really... All, all that 
I know I've discovered on my own that I have done some reading. There's a couple of uh, very good acoustic books. One is called The Foundations of Musical Acoustics by Arthur Benade, who was a famous acoustician that taught at Case Western. And he has that that was his textbook. And although I don't know uh, calculus and there is some calculus in the book, I was able to glean some information from it that was very important to my work that had to do with baffle shapes and volumes and uh, airflow. So essentially what I did is I just started messing around with mouthpieces and uh, ruined a whole lot of them in the process of figuring out what does what. And uh, as I as I got farther into it, I realized that that probably the most important aspect of the mouthpiece is the bore. And I thought, well, how am I going to change the bore? I'm going to have to have bore reamers made. So I started this exploration with a company in San Francisco uh, that they made my first reamer uh, for about $500. And then I subsequently had them make about four or five more. And everyone got progressively more expensive until I finally got to the point where I I I had thought I had the ideal shape and taper and I asked them to make it for me and they go, well, that's going to be $1,500. And I said, what? This is, this is back in, you know, before even 1990. And they said, essentially, we don't want to make them anymore for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I still have the original five reamers and, uh, they are, I am able to sharpen them, but, uh, that's, that is the most important part of my work is being able to, uh, adjust the tuning and the voicing, uh, with the, uh, from, from the bore. So that part of it is, is something that, um, has become very interesting as part of my proprietary information that I don't really share with anybody. Uh, I'll share the process, but I don't yeah. share exactly what I do. So, so for someone who might not know then we've got the facing, the bore, what other parts are there kind of that a layperson or even not a layperson, maybe, you know, your average clarinet player might not know about or might not understand. Well, well the, the three essential parts, of course, are the, uh, the facing, the bore and the chamber. Uh, within the chamber, you know, there's a lot of variation, too. It has to do with, you know, how close are the sidewalls to the center? Uh, how do you shape the baffle? And I mean, by the baffle, I mean the entire area from the bottom of the chamber where it uh, enters the bore up to the tip. And then we have the area that's just essentially called the tip baffle, which is right behind the tip rail, which has a huge effect on the way a mouthpiece responds and sounds. And, um, and then all the variations of uh, window shape, window size, uh, chamber depth, um, and even then also the outside shape of the mouthpiece uh, makes a difference. But essentially, it's, it's the bore the chamber and the facing, those three things working together that gives a mouthpiece its uh, particular sound. So I won't ask you for specific measurements then, I guess, but um, so the way that someone might want to uh, work on a mouthpiece to change it, does it start at the mouthpiece or do you start with like a piece of paper and sort of make calculations or, I mean, you mentioned a lot of mouthpieces sort of got ruined trying to find the best one. So it makes me think that maybe Maybe it's sort of a trial and error aspect. How does it work? Well, yeah, I, essentially it was trial and error. We do have – so there are limits to uh, how far you can go um, with with both the facing and the volume of the, of the mouthpiece. There are minimum and maximum uh, volumes that will work. Be, once you get beyond those, then the mouthpiece doesn't tune or it doesn't respond. But 
I no, I never did anything as far as you know mathematical calculations. Essentially, you take a mouthpiece that works, you find a mouthpiece that works, and you measure that, and you try and copy it. It's like you know the great artists; uh, they would all go to you know. Let's think of the like the impressionists, especially one of the things that they would do is go to the Louvre and they would copy the great masters, and by doing that, learn a lot about the work. So. The the greatest master that uh, I mean I've run into to several, but greatest master who I never met, of course, was um, uh, Frank Casper. Uh, not all of his mouthpieces were great, but the good ones were 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 excellent. And I played uh, Casper mouthpieces for most of my career before I started making my own mouthpiece, and uh, I learned a lot by collecting. Uh, Casper mouthpieces and measuring their facings uh, in particular, and then also by measuring their bores. And uh, so I would just attempt to replicate a facing. Um, I did do a little bit of work with uh, Everett Matson. We essentially just spent uh, an entire afternoon together, and he, I would have to say, is the is the was the finest. Uh, refacer of mouthpieces I've ever met. He just had a great hand and a great touch and a uh, very gentle man in, in the truest sense of the word and very generous. He would not charge me for his time and he just felt he was passing the torch on to me. So we had a very special relationship and anybody that knew him knows that he was just a master craftsman at, at refacing mouthpieces. And then another gentleman I worked with was a man named Glenn Johnston, who was uh, in LA for many years. He played the studios and kind of a cantankerous old man, but had a lot of knowledge and uh, was more, a, you know, fly by the seat of his pants. He would, he, he was interesting. He would not really use gauges so much to test his work. He knew when he was putting a facing on what it was doing and how it re would react. And uh, he made some very good mouthpieces for me. I played one of his bass clarinet mouthpieces for about five years. But essentially, it's just, it's trial and error. Um, if because unless you have somebody teaching you, which I, you know, other than those two men, I didn't really uh, have anybody teaching me. So you've made over ten thousand professional mouthpieces um, in the thirty years that you've been doing it. Yeah, actually, I'm up to eleven thousand forty-five as of last night. <laughs> and and that does not include the 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 debut of the Nova. That's only the professional oh, no. series. So the the debut mouthpieces. If you include the clarinet, saxophone, bass clarinet, all those, uh, last year I think we sold around fourteen thousand. Oh my god! So yeah, so we do in the last ten years at least ten thousand a year of those, and uh, I don't make those anymore. Jeff um, Anderley, my assistant, makes those, um, and he's become really, really good at it. And uh, I don't even have to test them anymore. He's so good. So uh, fortunately, I don't have to do this. Also, Jeff also makes the Nova mouthpieces. Uh, the Nova mouthpieces, uh, the clarinet and the bass clarinet are my own uh, core design, which I worked with J.J. Uh, Babbitt. So th those are my own molds. Nobody else can buy them. And particularly the bass clarinet mouthpiece, we just redesigned. And it's just, it's just fantastic, especially for the price. We tried to uh, – I essentially tried to make it very similar to my 10K bass clarinet mouthpiece, and I think I succeeded. So this is a handmade mouthpiece then for just $159, basically? Well, Are they start at the Novas? 
the, the, the Nova clarinet mouthpiece and bass clarinet mouthpiece are molded at J.J. Babbitt. And mm-hmm. so they come to me as a, quote, finished mouthpiece. But part of the, uh, the problem with molding mouthpieces is that um, the bore is, sh- is cooled on what's called a shrink plug. And there can be a wide variation of how that shrinks. Sometimes they pull off a little bit and the bore becomes quite small. So even with the Nova mouthpieces, they're all hand uh, reamed. And then we have to go through and make adjustments to the uh, window and the facing bass clarinet as well. So I should mention that I just misspoke there. The Nova B-flat clarinet mouthpiece is actually starting at 159 and the bass clarinet one starts at 179, but that's still a great great deal for something that's been, you know, really hand finished and 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 had some attention. And that is my list price. If you go to uh, Woodwind and Brasswind, who is my largest distributor, they have a substantial discount on that. So oh, wow. Um yeah. So I mean we're really looking at handmade mouthpieces that are um, down around the price of a Van Doren mouthpiece, which I have to say, um, I really do not like Van Doren mouthpieces, and I've never played them in my entire career. I have never played a Van Doren mouthpiece, never owned one. <laughs> I know a <laughs> lot of people play them. I think for the price, you know, if you can try enough of them, they're like Van Doren reeds. You might find one out of 10 that plays okay. And there are a lot of people that play them, and there there is a yeah, there's a, I guess there's a need for that. But uh, uh, one of the problems with, with uh, Van Doren pricing is that it's made it very difficult for people like me to um, make a good living on a handmade mouthpiece. So with the, with the, the Nova mouthpieces, that is something that we just don't have a very large profit margin on, but because we have to keep it at a price that can be competitive with Van Doren. But I feel very dedicated to the idea of being able to produce a uh, good handmade uh, mouthpiece that students and, you know, amateurs can afford. So what is this, the, the difference then for, for people who are looking at, um, you know, these kind of products? And I understand it's obviously a lot of more time gets invested the higher we go up in price. But what other differences are there between like the debut Nova and then as we get up into your San Francisco and... Europa and then eventually the 10K and CWF. Yeah. Uh, well, so let's start at the debut mouthpiece. So one of the reasons that we can keep the price on low on that, and I have not changed the price on those in, um, I think, seven years now. So the list price on the debut clarinet mouthpiece is thirty nine fifty, and I'm really dedicated to trying to try to keep that price below forty dollars. And uh, the reason we can keep the price low on that is. It's an injection molded mouthpiece that's uh, made at J.J. Babbitt. And so injection molding is, uh, you know, plastic or acrylic. And it's a very uh, accurate and inexpensive way to make mouthpieces. I think, you know, for many years, plastic mouthpieces were denigrated because, you know, essentially that's what student mouthpieces student instruments came with and they were terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, the old, you know, anything that you would get with a, a, a student grade mouthpiece was uh, with a student grade horn was essentially just terrible. Uh, it was David Height that first came up with the idea of hand finishing a plastic mouthpiece. And that was his uh, premier mouthpiece, which Babbitt now owns that mouthpiece and they sell. And uh, I met David at one time. He was also very generous and, and kind. 
And we talked a lot about mouthpieces. And this is before I started making mouth. I was just making mouthpieces for myself. I met him in Florida in 1986 when I was on tour. And we were talking about mouthpieces. And he, and he says, forget the pros. They don't know what they want. All the money's in the student mouthpieces. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's true. And so uh, after I, after a while, I contacted Babbitt and I, and I said, well, let me, you know, they were already making a mouthpiece for me and they had a facing cam, which is a, a way of just facing a mouthpiece by machine. And I said, why don't you run uh, some samples for me on this plastic mouthpiece? And it turned out it was great. It was, was fantastic. And so, uh, so we have them uh, mold the basic mouthpiece. They put my facing on it, my CF plus facing. And then when we get it, we do some touch up on the mouthpiece. We do a final finish, which uh, evens out the facing. We do a little bit of work on the tip rail and uh, the side rails and then do a little bit of polishing with steel wool on the inside. And they just play fantastic. So we can keep the price down on that because um, they're essentially so good off the machinery. Uh, then the next level up, the uh, the Nova mouthpieces require quite a bit more work because they are a molded mouthpiece. Um, for a long time, Babbitt was making my professional mouthpiece before I started using uh, Zinner blanks. The reason I stopped using uh, uh, Babbitt for my professional mouthpiece uh, is that they they ran into a period where they were having a lot of trouble with rubber, and it was just everything that they were sending they were sending me was just not very good and then i met the zinners at the clarinet conference in i think 1991 in uh, uh, new orleans and we talked about uh, mouthpieces and pricing and what they could do for me and so i i established this relationship with them and they've been they've been excellent and i've been using their mouthpieces now uh, for a very long time since 1991 but the, getting back to the Nova mouthpieces, th those are a lot of work. But uh, the thing that's nice about those is that I've been able to work with Babbitt on developing a core mold, which is the inside shape, the negative space. And that is something that's uh, very close to my ideal shape that I like. And then we, we have to do just a little bit of tweaking, but it's such a good uh, shape that I've come up with that essentially all we have to do on the clarinet mouthpieces is change the bore and do uh, a little bit of work on the on the facing and they play they play really really well i'm very proud of that mouthpiece i think it's it's a fantastic mouthpiece at the price and then the bass clarinet mouthpiece we just redesigned uh a year ago i had been using a generic mold that they had which was pretty good but it never really played the way that i wanted a good bass clarinet mouthpiece to play so i invested the money in a uh, in a new mold and we worked on it for it took over six months to get it developed between uh, you know samples and they would send me the core i would work on it send it back and um anyway that's i i, I think of the nova mouthpieces as professional quality mouthpieces that are priced so that uh students and uh, amateurs can buy them without breaking the bank. Then the, uh, the Zinner mouthpieces, the San Francisco series, uh, those mouthpieces are produced uh, for me by Hans Zinner in uh, Germany. And uh, I think they, they have some of the best rubber. And I really, I, I like the mouthpiece very much and I sell a ton of them. Uh, again, 
there because it's a molded mouthpiece, there are problems with the bore. I know that there are mouthpiece makers that use Zinner. Well, just about every mouthpiece maker in the United States now uses Zinner as a, as a place to start. Very few, uh, if any, actually uh, take the trouble to rebore them. Uh, Zinner can offer either a small bore or a large bore mouthpiece. Uh, the large bore is closer to the bore that I like to use, but because of the vagaries of molding, sometimes they would be too large and they would play flat and they wouldn't respond well. So after some experimenting, I just, I have always bought their small bore mouthpiece and I ream them up to my specifications. That way I have a lot more control of the intonation and also I can standardize the bore. Whereas if you just buy a Zinner mouthpiece and you don't adjust the bore, it's, it's crazy how different each mouthpiece can be. So, um, there is a, quite a bit of work involved with the uh, Zinner mouthpieces. They come to me essentially as a blank that really doesn't play very well and uh, just without any work on it. So th there's there's quite a bit of handwork involved in those. Um, I have Jeff do all the reaming because I'm developing uh, tendonitis in my elbow. No, but no. he does all the reaming for me and, and uh, preps the blanks. And then I do the final finish work. Um, and... The uh, the base clarinet mouthpieces, the bore is is pretty good on those, and because it's a larger mouthpiece, the the small changes from uh, mouthpiece to mouthpiece don't have as much of effect on the intonation and the sound as it does on a soprano clarinet mouthpiece. But given that it is a molded mouthpiece, and Zinner uh, can only produce one bore shape. And they do have several different uh, baffle shapes. They have different models of, of, of mouthpieces. But um, I've settled on on two, their A-blank and their E-blank. And their E-blank is slightly modified for me in the way that they cut it. But their A-blank is, which is what I use for the CD, CWF mouthpiece. But because it's a molded mouthpiece and it's their design, I'm stuck with, with what they produce. I can only modify it so much. In my personal playing, I played a an older Babbitt mouthpiece for about 18 years that I just loved. And it, I could never get a Zinner mouthpiece to respond that way, even though I could, I made a lot of great Zinner mouthpieces and I have a couple as backups to my, my other mouthpiece. I could never really get the sound to go the way that I wanted to get the spin and the sound. And that's when I came up with the idea of um, working with Wes Rice on uh, making this 10K mouthpiece. Actually, it was, it was an idea I've had for a while. Uh, I went to another manufacturer earlier and was just very unhappy with the results that I, I got from their machining. And so I abandoned that project. And then when I had met Wes uh, through my business. He was selling some of my student mouthpieces. And then he contacted me one day and he said, Clark, I just bought this very expensive uh, CNC lathe cnc means computer numerically controlled lathe so basically a lathe that's uh he can uh, uh run through a computer program and he says i have this program and he says i need to i need to pay or i have this new lathe i need to pay for it do you have any projects i said well sure uh, let me see how you do on making uh some uh, barrels for me so he made some uh some barrels for me and they were very good and then I said, well, I've had this uh, idea for a long time of making a uh, Delrin barrel. Could you make those for me? And he says, sure. So he ran uh, 
several of those for me. This is my HDP uh, barrel, which is uh, this high-density polypropylene, Mm -hmm. essentially Delrin, uh, which have turned out to be fantastic barrels, and they're very inexpensive. They're only $100. Uh, So... Progressing through this, he he started doing some when we when we ran out of time and we couldn't do all the barrels here. He would make some barrels for me, and then uh, he he called me. He says, "Clark, I want to start making mouthpieces for you." And I said, "Really? You don't know how to make mouthpieces?" And he says, "Well, I can." He says, "I can figure it out." <laughs> now, Wes, uh, you, who you spoke to, uh, I guess about a month ago. Yeah, it was just before I went to um, Midwest. Yeah, have you met him? Yeah. Um, actually, no, no, I haven't. Yeah. Not in person. Okay. So, uh, Wes is a very brilliant guy. And, um, uh, I, I, in the process of working on this, I actually went to his shop in Maryland. Uh, it's been, uh, well over a year now we were in the process of working on this mouthpiece and he's sort of the MacGyver of the clarinet world. This guy can figure out anything. He's just, he's, he's just got this, ability to figure things out. And, you know, I was a little skeptical, but he bought a, um, a, a CNC milling machine, an inexpensive one, and he just started going at it. And he taught himself uh, how to write CAD programming, taught himself how to use this tool. And uh, so we started we started working on making mouthpieces and uh, together. And he learned a lot from me, and I learned a lot about the process of making mouthpieces. It's taken us a lot longer than we ex- either of us expected. In the process, he realized that the 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 first machine he bought was not going to be capable of producing uh, the type of mouthpiece, the type of finish that I I required. So he invested in in a much more expensive uh, CNC uh, milling machine, and the results we've been getting uh, recently have been much much better. We finally, just in the last week, I think we've arrived at the absolute final version of the clarinet mouthpiece. We arrived at the final version of the bass clarinet mouthpiece a couple months ago, but we have been working on the clarinet mouthpiece for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, the 10K, you mean? The 10K, yeah, excuse me, the 10K mouthpiece. Um, so the 10K mouthpiece was came out of this frustration that I had with the Zinner blanks and not being able to produce the same sound I was getting from this old, um, uh, Babbitt blank that I played on for so many years. And, uh, so now I'm playing a 10 K mouthpiece and I'm just, I'm really ecstatic. I'm, I'm just, I feel like I'm really playing with the best sound that I've ever played with. And, uh, it just, you know, the intonation is great, and and uh, I've used it a lot now. This the one that I'm playing. I think I've been playing uh, well over six months. So I've, you know, I've played it in the symphony, I've played it in the opera, I've played principal in the opera with it, I've played it in the ballet, uh, and my, um, and it's slowly, it's taking a while to catch on. Part of it is that. Uh, Woodwind and Brasswin, who is my largest distributor, doesn't really want to pick it up yet. I think they think it's too expensive. So essentially, I'm the only distributor of the mouthpiece. So it's going to take a while to get into the uh, into the stream. But I think as, fi- people, as fe- people find out about it and they try them for me, they really like them. So you've really outdone yourself then. I mean, Clark W. Phobes himself has moved to the 10K from the CWF mouthpiece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I... I <laughs> 
it's always a, a you know a progress of, of finding the best thing for myself because I would never sell anything that I wouldn't play on myself. That's always been part of of, of what I've done. There are manuf- there are guys out there that make mouthpieces that are wildly different from what I make. And I just won't try to make I, I won't try to imitate them because I don't like that sound or I don't like that type of response. And I've just always felt um, and this has been part of my business career is that I, I will not sell anything that I don't believe in. I just won't. And uh, so because you 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 can tell when you're talking to if you've talking if you've spoken to any salesman, you can tell whether they believe in their product or not. And. So I just I just believe in playing uh, what I what I sell and what I make, um, and this this may sound odd to you, but as as a mouthpiece maker, um, I'm very monogamous. I have, like I said, I played the that one mouthpiece for 18 years, even though I've been you know in that time probably produced uh, 9,000 mouthpieces. I was never swayed to. Uh, uh, play something other than this this one mouthpiece. I'm I'm I get real stuck on equipment like that. I don't switch around a lot, and uh, and then as far as bass clarinet mouthpiece, I have a uh, I have a 10k that I'm using now, and I have a Zinner blank that I played for a long time. So, uh, you know, I I definitely play my own equipment. Of course, my own barrels too. I have to ask with the 10k. There's this unique um, blue sort of almost like, I, I know this is kind of a silly way to describe it, but for listeners, almost like the bowling ball look, um, yeah. sort of the blue. <laughs> How did that come about? How does that work? Well, the, uh, the uh, manufacturer that we buy the rubber from is in Germany. Uh, Schoenberger Ebonite Manufacturer is the name, SEM. And anybody can go to their website and you can see that they produce uh, this, these multicolored uh rods of rubber. So, so this is, this is also an essential, essentially important, important part of the 10 K mouthpiece. It's not molded. It's machined from a solid piece of rubber. And I'm convinced that there is something molecularly, uh, different about working with a solid piece of rubber as opposed to a molded piece of rubber. Now I have to say that I've always felt that the sound of the mouthpiece is more directly correlated to the shape and the volume and the um, acoustical space than the material. That said, if you get the tip of the mouthpiece thin enough, then you start getting some influence from uh, the composition of the material. But until you get to the point where the the tip is thin enough that it actually starts vibrating with the reed, I don't think that the material makes that much difference. A lot of people will, will argue that with me. But uh, I really believe that most of the sound comes from the shape of the mouthpiece. But getting back to the uh, the, the hard rubber uh, that's made by SEM, it's excellent rubber. And they offer these uh, different types of rubber in different colors. And I just uh, – I was just fascinated with the idea of making something that just looked a little bit different. So – um, I bought some of this blue rubber, which I thought was the, the most beautiful of all the, all the ones that they offer. And, you know, I've seen this before. Saxophone mouthpiece makers like Rafael Navarro um, use these multicolored mouthpieces and they, they buy the rubber from SEM as well. What was interesting was that I found that the blue rubber does actually have a different sound. If you, you know, use exactly the same dimensions, it has a slightly brighter sound. 
And I, I wrote to SEM and I, I mentioned this. I said, you know, this is my observation and it finishes out a little differently. And they said that the, uh, because of the dye that they use to mix with the rubber to give that color, they have to add a little bit more carbon for the whole thing to hold together. So I suppose the mouthpiece material is a little bit harder. Um, but I, it's, it, people seem to like it and respond to it. It's not just the color, it's also the sound. And particularly on bass clarinet, it really picks up the sound a lot. That's fascinating. Are, are you playing the blue version? I have a blue version, um, but I, I'm playing just the, the black version myself. I have to say, I, there's a problem is because I tried these at Clarinet Fest and I've been thinking about them ever since. <laughs> and uh, I'm a little bit nostalgic for them for some reason, because back in the day, um, I know you say you don't not a huge fan of Van Doren stuff, but I did have in the early 90s, maybe the late 90s, they did like a, a red um, rubber, a red rubber. And, you know, I had one of those and I in all through junior high school, it was my my first like real mouthpiece. Uh-huh. Um, it was one of those things. I was such a I was such a clarinet dork. I always tell this to to students who don't take me seriously when I recommend they ask their parents for a mouthpiece for Christmas. But I remember I had asked my parents for a mouthpiece and it, it was in my stocking and I was so keen that when I got to the mouthpiece in my stocking, I put down the rest of my Christmas stocking and went and practiced. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> That's I a just great story. <laughs> I had that mouthpiece for so long. And when I eventually wanted to upgrade, um, in university, like as I was auditioning, I wanted to upgrade and I actually sold that mouthpiece. I've always regretted it because they've also become rather rare. So I see these now and I'm like, oh my God, that's that cool little look again. It's <laughs> Yeah, well, there, there are, you know, you have to be of a certain age to know about those Van Doren mouthpieces. But yeah, I remember those. And also uh, Charlie Bay was making uh, those multicolored mouthpieces for um, quite a while. I don't know if you remember that. No, I've not seen those ones. Actually, maybe I have because they, they sometimes circulate and online um you yeah, see pictures he, of crazy he, stuff he didn't uh he didn't make them for very long but he uh he was using uh, red rubber now charlie um he's an interesting figure and he's he's one of these guys that um you know he's not as popular now and part of it is that he's just not active uh but in and when i was growing up and i was in high school he was he was kind of the guy because he was in southern california which is where i grew up and um, he really, I mean, I wish I had had the opportunity to talk to him more about his, his process, but I know that, uh, I, I think that the majority of his clarinet mouthpieces were uh, manufactured at a company called New York Hamburg, which mm-hmm. is the same place that uh, Van Doren has their mouthpiece, mouthpieces molded. I don't think that they're, I mean, I think Van Doren has separate facilities for, um, uh, for finishing their mouthpieces. But New York Hamburg is, is like the place where a lot of mouthpiece, um, manufacturers have their mouthpieces molded. And I think that they had this proprietary rubber that was multicolored. And so that's why Van Doren used it and, uh, Charlie Bay. Um, but it's interesting that the Van Doren, uh, abandoned that and they don't do that anymore. Yeah, you know, I've often wondered, um, you know, this is going into a totally different conversation, of course, but a lot of these manufacturers of the, these sort of Chinese instruments um, that are making, you know, pink clarinets or blue clarinets or whatever, they're quite popular with children. Um, and, you know, although I don't think those are, you know, real instruments to work with, I can understand why the kids are drawn to them. And it, it often confuses me, maybe it's just an economy of scale, but why larger manufacturers haven't decided to do that. So... 
Well, I think, you know, I, it, it's interesting when I first came out with the blue mouthpiece and, uh, there was one guy, uh, named Ken Yarsik, I think is his name, uh, who, whom I've never met, but in person, but he's a big fan of mine. And he, he's bought, I think every mouthpiece that I make. Um, but when he came, when he got the blue 10 K, he posted a very nice, a beautiful photo on Facebook and the, the pushback that, you know, I got from that was like, you know, pe people were either like, you know, astounded at how beautiful it looked or they say like, I would never play a blue mouthpiece. And I think that there's among clarinet players, there's just a certain amount of conservatism that, you know, people are not going to play. Most people are not going to play something different than a black clarinet and a black mouthpiece. Although, you know, with, with the advent of Bakun, there's a lot of people, uh, there are a lot of people that are playing, uh, the Cocobolo, uh, clarinets, which I, I think is not a great material to make clarinets out of, to tell you the truth. But mm. there is, there is a nice visual appeal to it. Well, and, and yeah, the, the whole clarinet world is a little bit weird in that way. I mean, why would someone else feel negatively affected because you choose to make or play on a different colored mouthpiece? I mean, what could be more superficial in a way? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's kind of odd, but I, I'm I'm in line with you. I think that what's really cool about the blue um, version is it takes the sort of uniqueness of each one a step further. Like they're all beautiful in their own way. They're kind of blended. They look really, really neat. And, you know, from a distance, it's kind of like a marbled look. It's I think it's pretty classy, actually. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I like it. And because of the nature of the material, every mouthpiece is unique. They don't, they don't all look the same. And, uh, yeah, I, I took in a, a blue mouthpiece to an opera rehearsal, I think this summer, and it really, you know, caught a lot of people's attention. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a lot of great information about your mouthpieces. I'm so glad we had the chance to have that conversation. Um, but I also, of course, I'm really interested in your barrels and your barrels are kind of what got me started on your brand over 10 years ago now. And, um, I actually have a rather funny story about that. Maybe I'll share in a minute, but what got you segued from the mouthpieces into the barrels? And would you tell me a little bit about your, your line of barrels and the different materials and sort of the specs kind of along the same line as the mouthpieces? Sure. So what got me into the, uh, into experimenting with barrels, was that uh, I think that, yeah, I was already making mouthpieces. Uh, but one of the things that just always bothered me about buffet clarinets, which I've, I've played all my career, uh, was that I could never find an A barrel that I liked. And uh, it just, it, I just, I was never happy with my A clarinet. And I knew that it had to do with the barrel. So, uh, I just started, uh, I was a, I was a buffet dealer at the time. And so I knew that David Haidt from his experiments and from talking to him, he, he made barrels, but what he was doing was buying, uh, buffet barrels and reaming them out. And so I started experimenting with the same way. And, and as you know, or may, or may know, uh, the buffet a barrels, are a much smaller bore than the B flat barrels. Mm -hmm. So I would buy the A barrels and I would ream them out. And this, this was, the, and I, I had a, you know, I had a reamer made. Um, I made a guess. I made a good guess on what I thought uh, the taper should be. And um, 
I bought my first set of reamers. I had a, a friend who was an oboe player, but also a very fine machinist. And he made me two reamers, two different tapers, and a very special bore gauge, which I still use. And um, that was that was the beginning of my experimentation with barrels. And again, whole process of like messing up a lot of barrels, which was quite expensive, because even as a dealer, I think the the buffet barrels at that time were costing me uh, close to a hundred dollars. So you know, you ruin one, you're out a lot of money. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I I uh, so I did that for several years, and and uh, you know, I, I got some good results. But then it just got too expensive to buy the barrels, and I just thought, well, why am I not making these myself? And I didn't own a lathe at the time. Uh, but I have a good friend who was, he was, uh, doing my engraving on my mouthpieces. He was connected to a couple of machinists down in the South Bay. And he says, why? Well, he says, I have this friend who has a very nice shop and he might be willing to take on a small project like that. And, um, so I went down and met with him and, and, uh, I was just immediately impressed with him. A, because his shop was so clean. I mean, he had all this machinery and you could eat off the floor. It was just amazing. And he had never worked in wood before and he was kind of fascinated by the idea. So I don't know if you've seen any of these barrels. There, are, We made them probably for um, about five years. This fellow's name was Oscar and I cannot remember his last name. He would make the rings for me and he would make the, the barrel bodies and then I would ream them out. And we had a really nice, um, you know, uh, joint venture there for, for several years. And then he kept raising his prices and then it was just starting to get, you know, too expensive. And I thought, well, why don't I just buy a lathe and start, you know, messing with this myself? So I bought uh, an Enco lathe, a 9 by 20 lathe, uh, which I'd never operated a lathe before, but I figured, you know, how hard could it be? And so, uh, I eventually started making my own barrels and, uh, that was quite, uh, uh, an informative experience, experience. And I couldn't ever really figure out how to make, um, metal rings. So I, I had this idea that I would, I would make, uh, Delrin rings and, that was somewhat successful because the wood would change, the rings would release. And then finally, after struggling with that for about a year or two, I just thought, why am I even using rings? Let's try making barrels without rings because I had seen them. Uh, Louis, Louis Rossi, do you know his clarinets? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so he and I had become very good friends. I'd met him at the clarinet conference in Ghent in 1993 and uh, he's he's a wonderful manufacturer, a wonderful person, fantastic clarinetist. I don't know if you've ever heard him, but just just amazing. Yeah, his clarinets are amazing too. The his, yeah, a lot of people play his clarinets really, you know, wonderfully handmade clarinets. The mechanism is beautiful. One of the uh, only ones to be made out of a solid tube, if I recall correctly. That's correct. Yeah, that's that's part of his. Um, his idea, you know, and he, it's a very good idea too. Um, anyway, I talked to him and, and I noticed that, uh, he didn't use any rings on his, on his clarinets, on any of the joints. And I said, don't you have trouble with them cracking? And he said, well, he says, we, we make sure that the wood is very stable before we machine it. And he says, I have very little problems with them cracking. 
um, I did some experimenting and I, I found that if I made the tenons thick enough that there probably would be, because that's where the tension comes from, uh, mm -hmm. you know, fitting them either with the mouthpiece or on, on the body. And so if they're going to crack, they're going to crack because the, the tenons are not thick enough or they're not uh, properly sized. And I experimented with a lot of different shapes. And the shape that I have basically came up from what is the least amount of wood I can use and still make uh, the, the barrel strong enough. And as I experimented with it, I found that there, if you, you know, if you put the weight the bulk of the weight in a different part of the, the barrel, it changes the way it sounds. So you look at like, for example, uh, a, um, a Bakun fat boy barrel, most of the weight is uh, near the middle of the barrel and that produces a, 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 a particular type of sound. Generally, the more mass that you have in the barrel, uh, the brighter the, mm. the, the sound is. And you would think it would be the opposite of way around, but what, what happens is that when you have either a very dense material or a very uh, large amount of material at the barrel, it restricts the barrel from vibrating on its own. When the barrel vibrates itself, then it starts influencing the, uh, the, bo the, uh, the, the air column. And so when you start getting this confluence of the vibrating air column and the vibrating body of the clarinet or the vibrating body of the uh, barrel, uh, it disturbs the sound in such a way that it creates more resistance. And we perceive that as darkness and uh, or resistance. So if you go to a heavier barrel, you'll actually get a little bit brighter sound. Um, doesn't it seems counterintuitive, but this is this is what, the, what the, my experimenting showed. So uh, my barrels are designed to uh, play with my mouthpieces, and I want something that is both responsive and warm sounding. So uh, that's how I came up with my my shape. And I also really think that having no rings allows the barrel to vibrate more. There's more constraint. And if you if you experiment with uh, you know, if, if you could, you can't, but if I was to put rings on my barrels, you would see that there would be a different sound. There would probably be, uh, with the rings, maybe a little bit more focused, but not as generous as far as, you know, uh, feeling that the sound is flexible. Now, you can also change the quality of sound, of course, by the shape of the bore and the size of the bore. But generally speaking, uh, the mass of the, the barrel does have a great influence on how it sounds. How did we get there? We were going from um, me starting to manufacture my own barrels. So uh, that was over a long period of time that I developed them. And unfortunately, I, I, I wish I had kept a sample of every barrel that I made of the different barrels, and I have not. Uh, I was just going to uh, ask if you still had you, one of those ringed ones and stuff like that. I do. I do have I do have one of the ringed ones. I don't think I have any of the, uh, the ones where I use the Delrin rings, and they oh. were a different shape too. Um, so I do have – I do have a couple of the old ringed ones, and th those were a more traditional shape. They were they were shapes more or less like a, a buffet barrel with a little bit of a bulb uh, about two thirds down the body. Uh, they were they were excellent barrels, but uh, I basically landed on the design that I I have now, maybe ten years ago, I think, because I'm, I have to gauge this by how long Jeff has been working for me because he makes most of the barrels. 
And he's he's in his ninth year of working for me, but we had already established that shape before he started working for me. So we really haven't changed it. But what has changed, as you know, because <laughs> you had a bad experience with him, uh, I, I did start making Coca Bolo barrels. Uh, I've come to the conclusion that the Coca Bolo is not a good material to make uh, barrels or clarinets from. Mm-hmm. It's just too porous and it's too uh, too changeable. If I can find a really nice piece of Coca Bolo, I think that they they are stable. But the problem is finding a good source for Coca Bolo, and I've had a I've I basically stopped making the solid Coca Bolo barrels when. Uh, Theodore Nagel of Germany stopped, well, they went out of business and they had a source. I was buying fantastic Coca Bolo, which was a very ruby red color. I try, after they went out of business, I tried uh, a couple of other sources and a lot of the Coca Bolo that I was getting was uh, more orange or yellow in color. And that just doesn't make good barrels. It just is too changeable. So, so the barrel that you had that cracked was a Coca Bolo barrel. Is that correct? I actually had one of the new rubber line ones. I think the problem here, perhaps, is just like you're saying, maybe the climate's not good or something because it's very dry and Coca yeah. Bolo maybe just isn't the best wood to use. But I wanted the rubber line one, which I also wanted you to talk about a bit, um, just because of the stability that that brings to the the tuning and yeah. So <clears throat> I went through this period of making Coca Bolo uh, barrels. And they, they have a beautiful sound, I have to say. And I, I, I played one for a while, but I found that they would change even as I played them. And so I stopped, uh, I stopped selling those. And then I came up with this idea, which was not an original idea, of putting a hard rubber insert into the Coca Bolo barrels. Uh, so the hard rubber, of course, will not change at all. Now, unfortunately, in your case, the uh, the coca bolo is still cracked around the uh, uh, the hard rubber lining, but uh, I think that's unusual. I have I've had very few very few of those uh, hard rubber lined coca bolo barrels crack. Um, the reason I and I could make a hard rubber lined uh, grenadilla or blackwood barrel, but I found it was just it was too dense and too focused of a sound. I didn't mm. like it. But in combination with the Coca Bolo, it's a really nice sound, and it's very responsive, and it won't change. So we still do make those. Uh, we, of course, they're two hundred and forty nine dollars, so we don't sell as many of those as as the uh, standard barrels. Well, yeah, I have the standard ones. I've had them actually for many years. Um, I also have the the rubber line ones, though. I do find them to be a little bit like characteristically different, but both are really good. Yeah, um, I really, really have liked them in a lot of ways, and. I always did wonder about the shape, so it's really interesting to to hear about that today um, as we, we sort of talk about that. Um, I have a funny story about those barrels, actually, if, you, if you're interested. Sure. I remember when I was in university, I was kind of, for, some, for a while, I sort of turned into a bit of a gearhead, oh. I think, kind of to my teacher's dismay. And uh, so one day I had brought in this selection of barrels to try from various manufacturers, and, and yours was one of them. And, and uh, you know, I asked him to go out in the hallway and listen to me just play them and, and tell me which one was the best. And, and he insisted that I toss his barrel into the mix. <laughs> uh-huh. And he's like, you just won't find one as good as this, but you know, go ahead. Right. <laughs> so I was playing and he was listening and asked me to do it several times. And he asked me to do it several times more than I thought was maybe typical. Like he clearly was actually interested, like quite interested in what he was hearing. And finally he just said like, okay, that's mine. 
um, and it actually turned out to be yours. And he was so amazed that, <laughs> that, that I had found a barrel that was better than his. I think he ordered about six of them. And, and uh, so he's been using oh. them ever since as well. Oh, great. But um, it was so funny because he had this sort of barrel that he really coveted for so many years and, and was really, really stunned by the, the, yeah. the sound and the quality and the response. And, and uh, it was kind of interesting, actually, to, to see. <laughs> but uh, my, my recollection is that the, uh, the, the last ones that I sent you, which were um, Coco Bolo, were really beautiful. They were oh, I mean, yes. they're probably darkened now, but they were they were like almost uh, a bright red. You know, Coco Bolo comes from essentially from Mexico. And so it's shipped all the way over to Germany where they they uh, resaw it. And then it has to come all the way back to the United States. And it's just kind of ridiculous. But this this particular uh, manufacturer distributor that I found in Germany has a fantastic source for Coco Bolo. And I actually even though I've said that I don't think Coco Bolo is the best material for making barrels, this wood that I've bought from him, he said that has this this is somebody that I knew through uh, through Theodore Nagel. Now he's working for this other company. And he says that particular batch of Coco Bolo had been there drawing for at least eight years, uh, maybe wow. longer. So uh, uh, I'm not going to give you the name because I don't want my my competitors to go after them. But <laughs> uh, I just ordered a lot more because we've been now that this is I like the, the wood to sit for at least a year before we work on it. This particular batch of Coco Bolo is so good and it's aged so well that I might start making a few solid Coco Bolo barrels and see how it goes with this wood. Because I have had a people, a lot of people contact me that, you know, would like to try those. So, yeah, let's 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 talk a little bit about the process of um, of, you know, the wood and, and, and how this works. So we buy the uh, the, uh, the the wood in what are called billets and uh, they're essentially about um, any, it depends on, you know, who I buy it from, but they're essentially a foot to 16 inches long and an inch and a half square. So uh, we buy these from the main, from the distributor and we put them in downstairs in the garage, which is where my shop is and let them sit for, uh, about a year or longer if we can just to stabilize. Uh, unfortunately, because it's the ambient humidity in San Francisco is so high, we don't really get down to the low, uh, humid, low, uh, water content that, uh, some, you know, manufacturers do, but there, but there again, a lot of instrument manufacturers, they, I know that they do some, uh, kiln drying of their wood and then <clears throat> to make it stable, they have to re-inject oils through pressure. So I'm just a fan of just letting the wood dry naturally. Mm -hmm. So it goes through this stabilizing period of at least a year, and then we turn it down into, uh, cylinders cut those up to rough sizes of about 68 millimeters or 69 millimeters so that we can cut them down to any size. And then we through bore them, which they don't really start drying out until they're through, through bored and the air can really circulate. So we through bore them with um, a, a bore that's a half an inch, which is undersized for a clarinet bore. And then we put rough tenon bores in because I found when I was making barrels myself and we didn't do this, it's it's incredible how fast the the uh, tenon dimensions will change, 
And when you, if you let a, a barrel that you manufacture, let's say you don't put this rough tenon and you just manufacture the, the, uh, the tenon to specifications, within a day it will have changed. And what happens is they don't really shrink, but they become egg-shaped. They, mm. they shrink to the grain. And uh, so then there's this whole process of trying to, you know, open them up so that they, they fit properly, but they're not concentric anymore. So I found that if we put the rough tenons in and then we let them sit another uh, six months to a year, then all most, I would say 90% of the shrinking happens during that period. And then when we put the final bore and the uh, final tenon shape in or you know, tenon dimensions in, they change very little, and especially with the blackwood. So the process is after they've been sitting in these rough blanks for six months to a year, then we put them on the lathe and uh, we do all the, the standard boring to the um, outside shape. We make the tenons to our specifications, and then we put in a, a rough bore that has approximately the, the correct angle, but it's undersized. And then we, uh, uh, we use a hand reamer for reaming them up to shape. And this further increases the, uh, the stability because then once, once, it's, once it's finished out, it's then again sits in the drawer until I send them out. And as the final, at very final process, I check them and I put in a final, just a very final bore, which is only changing the dimension by about two thousandths of an inch. So I'm pretty confident by the time that we send the barrel out, it's very stable. I do have a guarantee on my my barrels for a year that if they change or they crack, I'll, I'll replace them for free. And fortunately, I only in I mean I don't sell that many barrels, maybe uh, three hundred and fifty to four hundred a year, but out of that amount, I, the, the percent that I get back that are cracked is, is you know, maybe 1%, four or five a year. How is the process different for the uh, the rubber-lined one then? Is that like a core that's inserted afterwards or it obviously doesn't grow in the tree? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, so, that yeah, that's interesting. So uh, what we do is we uh, we do the same steps with the, with the rough blank where we put in a uh, rough bore and uh, the rough – uh, tenons. And again, we let that sit for probably uh, six months to a year. Then uh, th this is why they're so much more expensive. Uh, Jeff does all the work on this, but we have, we buy the rubber from Schoenberg uh, SEM and we, we buy these uh, uh, basically the core, which is about, uh, I think it's a, it's a little under um, three quarters of an inch. And then we machine a, uh, a little tapered piece, and then we machine the, the exact same taper inside the barrel. So this is oversized. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and we also have, when we make this little tapered piece, we also put a rough bore in it. We start off by putting a rough bore through it, which is a half an inch, and then we, we taper the outside. So when we glue it, and then we glue it in with Gorilla Glue, which we found out has been a really, really good glue. So when we press it in, there's a little bit of taper, so we can really clamp it in and uh, and glue it under pressure, those things are not coming out. And so once that part is glued in, then we go through all the next steps of, of uh, you know, finishing it out. So basically we're start, what we end up with after the uh, hard rubber insert is in there is 
a you know a barrel blank that looks like our other barrel blanks, only it has a piece of rubber in it. And then so your HDP synthetic barrel, that's sort of um, not really marketed to students. I guess it's sort of meant more to be um, incredibly stable and a different material for, for different pallets almost, I guess. How yeah. does that one work? Well, so uh, that actually I, I did come I, – I tried to – I was hoping it would be a little bit less expensive than that. But it's just the material's expensive and, and they're machined. So uh, there is, there's just a, a certain amount of expense in all that. But um, I wanted to keep them under $100, sort of aiming for the student market in that um, these work really well, in particular on the uh, Buffet E11 clarinets. Mm. And you can make um, – you can really change the sound of a clarinet by by changing the barrel. One of the barrels that's been very popular – is my C barrels for the E11 C clarinets. C clarinets now have become so expensive. I think Buffet is only making a prestige uh, C clarinet, um, you know, in a professional model. But in their student model, they make this E11 C clarinet that's pretty darn good, but it's, it doesn't have a good barrel. The barrel is is just, I don't know, I don't know what they were thinking, but it doesn't tune properly and it, and it doesn't sound very good. So by putting one of my C barrels Onto this still expensive clarinet, but relatively in, relatively inexpensive to a prestige, it really transforms the instrument. So this is my idea with for students. They could take, let's say, somebody is playing even even a plastic clarinet, but say an E11. Their parents aren't ready to you know fork out the money for an R13 or for you know a Selmer Presence, uh, you know, or, or any other uh, instrument. They can put a barrel on an instrument and really transform it. So, um, so th- that was the idea behind the, uh, the HDB barrel. It's also ideal for, uh, climates like the, the Southwest, like Arizona. I, if people call me from Arizona and want me to send them a barrel, I won't even do it <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> I said, because, because the, the experience I've had is they crack. And I think part of it is, you know, our ambient humidity here is, relatively high. I, I would say almost always 60% in my house, in my 60%? shop. 60%? Yeah, probably 60%. Well, I wow. live right next to the ocean. And so, yeah. you know, we just the, the, the ambient moisture in San Francisco itself is, is really very high. It's always between 60 and 100. And we get 100 when, when it's foggy. And as we get a lot of fog in the summer. So very rarely when it's very cold, uh, if we get a stretch of cold, it might get down to 30%, but that's really unusual. So just to so, contrast, my house with the humidifier going full tilt for the piano, the guitars, and my clarinets and stuff, we can barely keep it at 30% in the winter. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> it's a totally different climate here. Well, well that's it. I mean, and that is a problem with uh, the Northeast, too, is that, uh, you know, buildings are overheated in, in, the, uh, in the winter when it's so cold, and that dries out. That dries out the air in the house, but well, it makes you sick too. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, so I think that so there is a problem with my my barrels. Um, once they go to a, a super dry climate like that, they just they just continue to dry, and they it's that rapid drying that makes them crack. So, uh, so what are your so, humidify, humidifying um, recommendations then for for your products and clarinets in general? Then I mean. Obviously, there you don't really have to worry about it. But for for clients that are in drier climates, would you recommend like a Lomax case or a, just a little Humidipax? Or 
I think Mike's case is fantastic. That's a great idea. Uh, there's even a couple guys here in San Francisco that 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 have those. And really, I mean, they're relatively inexpensive for for what they are. And he even has a he has a model that has a, an internal heater too, which which is a great idea for places like you know Alberta, Canada, where you're walking outside and it's so darn cold. What makes clarinets crack is um, a rapid change in either humidity or temperature. And uh, I, I think sometimes people, even even professionals, are a little bit careless about, you know, how they warm up their clarinet. You pull it out of your case. I mean, there's there's times where I don't turn on the heat at night in my house. It's a waste of energy. So it can get quite cold. And then I'll, I'll get up in the morning to practice and I'll open the case and it's just the instrument is very, very cold. So what I like to do is um, – either rest the instruments in my lap or turn on the heat and let the thing warm up a little bit before I play it. But what makes a clarinet crack is when when the body is cold and then you immediately start playing it, what happens is that the inside of the, the clarinet expands much more rapidly than the outside and that stress creates cracks. What's the coldest though San Francisco could get there? I mean, we're, we're talking... Well, we had a stretch here... Uh, Last week, where it was getting down to the high 30s at night, which oh, is, wow. for some, you know, it's freezing, right? You're talking Fahrenheit, obviously. Yeah, Fahrenheit. Yeah, yeah. well, freezing is 32 Fahrenheit. It rarely gets down to freezing here. But, but uh, you know, because the humidity is high here, it feels colder than than that. So, hmm. um, and we, we had a stretch where it was only getting up to about, uh, you know, 45, 46 during the day, which is, which is quite cold for San Francisco. And generally, it's not that cold here. Yeah, it's a great. I think it's a great climate for a clarinet player. No wonder you, you've enjoyed staying there for for so yeah, long. Yeah, well, also the reeds are quite are generally quite stable here because we have a fairly stable uh, humidity. Sometimes, you know, if we get a storm coming in or if we get a, a real cold stretch, then then we'll we can have a stretch of having problems with reeds. But nothing like, you know, where you are, where it's so dry, which is just I think I don't know how people play. You know, I don't know how people live here. And even though I have my whole life, uh, it's funny. Yeah. An, another podcaster that I, I sometimes chat with online, um, he has a podcast for uh, um, Contrabass called Contrabass Conversations. Anyways, he recently moved from Chicago to San Francisco and he, you know, he's posting everyday pictures of himself going running and big smile and T-shirts. And I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've learned yeah. to hate him as time has gone on. <laughs> It's a great place to live, except very expensive, probably yeah. the most expensive city in, in the United States now. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, and this has been a great conversation, I've learned so much about your barrels and methods and, and mouthpieces, obviously. Um, a listener question came in about something I also was wondering, and that is, how did you come about the idea for the E-flat clarinet extension? Um, and it's interesting to note that not only has this now extended to the C clarinet, but uh, there's even this nice rubber uh, red rubber instead of blue available for this now. What, what's the story behind this product? Well, um, I actually had that idea in the late '80s, but it was it was it was for a B flat clarinet, and the initial idea came from the fact that I play so much bass clarinet, and I just noticed when I was playing bass clarinet, and I have a low C extension, that the B natural was just so nice compared to the, the clarinet. And I realized it's because the tone was coming out of a tone hole and not out of the bell. Mm. And so I, I, this, this was an idea that was just floating around in my head for a long time. And I, but I didn't have the equipment or, you know, to, to experiment with it. And then uh, a friend of mine 
uh, David Neathammer, who used to be principal clarinet in the, uh, I think it was called the Richmond Symphony in Virginia. Uh, and we'd been friends for many years. And he called me and he said, Clark, I've just bought this, this ancient buffet clarinet, but it, the, the bell is too short and it doesn't tune properly. Could you make a bell for me? And I said, no, it was, it was a C clarinet. I said, no, I can't make a bell for it. But you know, I've had this idea for this extension. I said, let me, let me mess around with this. Send me the clarinet and let me mess around with this. I said, I won't charge you anything if you don't like it. So uh, I did just some rough calculations on, um, on where to put the, the tone hole. And the first one, I had the tone hole in the wrong place, but it, but it had a nice sound. And so the second one, I just, I just nailed it on the head. And um, so I sent it back to him and he goes, wow, this has just completely transformed the instrument. And so, and he says, and it's a great conversation piece. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I thought, well, I'm not gonna make a lot of money making C clarinet extensions, but I wonder if this would work on E flat. So, um, you know, and, and by this time I had my own lathe. So I, uh, I started, you know, running some experiments and, you know, I just did a f few rough calculations for bore and I think the second one I made played great. And so, I, you know, I, I thought I, I've got to start trying this. And I, for some reason I had, I think I had some work with the, with the uh, opera that I was playing E flat clarinet on and I took it into the opera orchestra and I stuck this thing and everybody's looking at it going, what is that? And I said, <laughs> well, this is my ex E flat clarinet extension. Listen to this. And uh, it played really well. And I thought, you know, I think this is something that's commercially viable. So uh, I think it was 2004 when the clarinet conference was at uh, in Salt Lake. And uh, so I, I, I thought, well, I'm just going to bring six of these and just see what happens. And I think I sold all but one of them. I was just astonished. I think part of it, people were just, they were just kind of uh, intrigued by the novelty of it. But, you know, I, I would say, well, listen, you know, try your instrument with it and then try it without it. And just the, the change is remarkable because it really changes the overall sound of the clarinet. And you may or may not like this idea, but I think it changes the sound from an E flat clarinet to just a high soprano clarinet. And it's just, it's very much more even. And also now we have the advantage of having a properly placed tone hole for the B natural. So the pitch is much better. Also, even if the, the tone hole is for your particular clarinet may not be in the right place, you can pull out a little bit and get quite a, quite amount of tuning room there. So it's funny, so, you raised sort of an interesting point there about um, someone maybe not agreeing with uh, the concept of sort of tempering the E flat sound. Um, and I was actually going to ask you about that because a lot of people, you know, they're playing Berlioz or something. They, they want the E flat to sort of bite through the orchestra. But, you know, there's many times where the E flat clarinet is used or misused, depending on your <laughs> your thought, as sort of an extension of the clarinet section's range, which something like this is so appropriate, you know, to, to for balance and blend and tuning and everything. Absolutely. You know, I, I used one of these in a wind ensemble for many years with great success. Well, I, I, and you know, if you decide that you want to go back to a sound that that is a little more penetrating, just don't play, don't use it. Yeah, remove but I it. Found <laughs> that I, I I'm so used to the response of the instrument with it that I can't play without it, and um, it also has this added advantage 
Now, if you're really tall, this doesn't work, and if you have a long body, but for me, being short, I'm 5'7", I can actually rest the clarinet on my knee because I've got this little bit of extension, mm. but it doesn't bother the sound because it's, it's coming out of a tone hole. Absolutely. And so, and, and then your question about the, the hard rubber is that, uh, so I don't make, so I was making uh, the extensions in Blackwood and Cocobolo, and they, I, I was surprised that being that far away from the mouthpiece, how the material influenced the sound, but it did. Um, the the Cocobolo being a little bit darker, but there again, we're not using any rings, and I was having trouble with the with the Cocobolo uh, the Cocobolo extensions cracking. So I just thought, why don't I try making them out of rubber? And then at, by this time, I'd run into SEM and they had this beautiful red rubber. And I thought, well, I'll make something that looks like the Cocobolo, but it's red rubber. And it's a little bit different sound. I was surprised at how much more powerful uh, the sound was with the hard rubber extension as, as opposed to a wood extension. So, you know, that's – so it's just an option. It's a, it's a sound option. But, but those will absolutely not crack. No. So that's a – that's a good advantage. So the question has to be asked then. So you've made them for E flat clarinet. You've made them for C clarinet. Um, and your first idea was for B flat, but I don't think that one's available yet. Is there a reason? Are you, is that maybe something coming up next or? Well, I, I did make a couple I've experimented and I, I, I made about, I tried uh, about five different variations and they just didn't work. And I hmm. found that, um, uh, it was, Interesting enough, really affected the uh, the pitch and the sound of the throat tones. It made the the throat tones very flat, and I think that has something to do with um, changing the the taper where the where the bell comes in. And um, I think for the thing to really be effective, so with with the clarinet, you you probably know this. The bell flare is not just the bell, but it starts at about the C, the FC tone hole, and it starts flaring from there. You can see that when you look in, in the bottom. Mm -hmm. And I think by uh, throwing the extension in, that it, it disturbs the, uh, the, um, the, the vibrating air column too much. I think for it to be effective, you would basically have to make the bore more straight and not flare as much. But then you're talking about a completely different type of clarinet. So... Um, there is somebody that's making a, a, a B flat clarinet extension. I think some Italian guy saw that somewhere, but um, it's just because of my experiments and and um, not working very well. Uh, I decided to abandon that. I, I'll tell you this: I am working with a manufacturer on making a new bell. Uh, oh for the, wow! Yeah, so um, this this is going to be a ringless barrel a bell. It's primarily designed for buffet clarinets for for the buffet clarinet uh flair because this is what i play and this is what most players play i'm not going to make an option for um you know a lot of different clarinets but what i am doing is i'm making the belt just slightly longer because a big problem with buffet clarinets is if you want to play at 440 that b natural is too sharp now i know some people recently have complained that the B naturals on buffet clarinets are flat. I think that's unusual. Um, so this is not a bell that would be, uh, you know, a fix for everybody. But for example, my case, when I play in the San Francisco opera orchestra, we play at 440. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. go up. And when I'm sitting 
you know, on a B natural in a, uh, you know, a G major, F major concert chord, and I've got the third, which has to be low, I can't do it. So, Mm -hmm. um, and it's, and it's excruciating. So, um, somewhat coming up with this bell to solve some of my own problems, but, (laughs) (laughs) and, and, um, and I think we're going to be able to sell it for about $350. So, yeah. So, uh, it'll be, it'll be a nice little addition to, uh, my accessory list. Well, you know, looping back to your mouthpieces, I mean, you you say you're solving your own problems, but I mean, these problems and and solutions, you know, extend to other people, right? So I think it's a great way to operate your, your concept and your business and your design philosophy um, on a whole. So. Well, I think it's interesting that uh, I've always wanted to do some kind of a history of, of uh, mouthpiece making in the United States, because I think it's where most of the innovation has happened. I think in Europe, you know, the, the, the idea of a handmade mouthpiece in Europe is is pretty foreign to them, pro- probably because the market is so dominated by Van Doren. And um, in the United States, we have this history of individuals becoming craftsmen. And it's been really interesting to see the progress. I should write a little article about this. I mean, I've got something started. But to see the progress of how who manufactures mouthpieces has changed. If we go back to the beginning of the 20th century, the first company that was making a specialized clarinet mouthpiece was a company called, um, I want to say Goldberg. Is that correct? Anyway, it's the, it's the, it's the guy who hired Frank Casper to work for him. Mm. Gold, Goldbeck, Goldbeck, excuse me, Goldbeck in Chicago. And they were a manufacturer of uh, clarinet mouthpieces, wooden, rubber, and metal. And my understanding is they they hired uh, the elder Frank Casper to come in and and actually specialize in making their metal saxophone mouthpieces. I have uh, an alto saxophone mouthpiece that says Goldbeck, or it says Frank Casper um, mouthpiece made for the Goldbeck company in Chicago. And I think that mouthpiece probably dates from about the uh, the 1920s. Anyway, so we so then then we start with Casper going into his own business, and he was apparently kind of an amateur clarinet player, but primarily he was making mouthpieces for other people. He wasn't really making them for himself. I don't I don't know how accomplished he was, and if he could actually he could test them to a certain point, but mostly he was he was making mouthpieces for other people, and he was the first you know, real successful uh, individual mouthpiece maker. And then we get into this this period where we get guys like Anthony Giuliotti, uh, uh, Bernard, Mitchell Lurie, um, all these guys that are getting other manufacturers to make mouthpieces in their names to their specifications. That's a whole different thing. And then with Charlie Bay, He's kind of the first guy who's actually a very accomplished clarinet player that's making clarinet mouthpieces. Now, and then, so and when we see, you know, a number of people uh, like him come up, uh, Bob Borbeck, uh, but now we're in, a, we're in a time, we're probably in the most fantastic time of mouthpiece clarinet making in the United States where the guys that are successful that are making mouthpieces are also very good clarinet players. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of Richard, Richard Hawkins, Brad Bain, um, uh, myself, Walter Grabner, 
Mike Lomax, all these guys are really good clarinet players. So it's sort of lent this uh, whole other area of expertise that we didn't have 50 years ago, where you have professional players making mouthpieces for professional players. And it's, it's really an exciting time, I think. Yeah, I think we have so much technological advancement, not just with mouthpieces, but, you know, the barrels and the, the materials and the quality of the materials and so many things. We live in such an incredible age. So Yeah, but it's interesting that we're still kind of working on <laughs> something that hasn't changed too much from uh, the early 19th century. That is very strange, actually. <laughs> <laughs> at what point will it be done? Yeah, well... <laughs> Probably never. I mean, look at yeah. and also look at in, instrument manufacturing. I mean, you know, Buffet and Selmer. I mean, what Selmer is doing now with their clarinets is just fantastic. And uh, Buffet is always coming out with with uh, new things. So we, we have this like renaissance of of, of uh, clarinet manufacturing right now. That's just really exciting. Yeah, it's truly unbelievable that just the sheer number of products coming out and the quality and you know even the affordability is is quite amazing. Right, 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 right. Well, hopefully. You know, uh, I, my my 10K mouthpiece, the list price is 310. That's that's a pretty far cry from uh, Brad Bain, who's I think his top mouthpiece is $700. But you know, hopefully, if uh, we can speed up the manufacturing process, we might be able to lower the price a little bit. But you know, a lot of it just has to do with time and the machine. Yeah, I think people do. You know, they respect the time and they do appreciate the quality. So. I'm sure that there's, you know, a market um, at, at many price points actually throughout these, the range of the products. Yeah, absolutely. Before we go, um, you've been so generous as to, on your website for many years, actually, you've offered uh, a free debut mouthpiece for any qualified person. Would you, would you tell us a bit about that and, and uh, how someone could get in touch if they're interested in trying this? Sure, Absolutely. Um, I've done this for years uh, because my I, I believe so much in my student mouthpiece, and I think it's such an advantage for students that uh, you know you can talk yourself blue in the face about and advertise about how good something is, but until you actually get it in your hands and have your students try it, y- you may not be a believer. So uh, I've done this uh, for many years. So on my website, on the very first page, you'll see. Uh, Uh, a a link that says free debut mouthpiece. So now this is not free for everybody. This is free for qualified teachers. And I'm talking about teachers that teach in the public school system or private teachers that have a large studio. This is not for somebody that, you know, is teaching their kid how to play clarinet. (laughs) So, but, but for somebody that, that is actually interested in trying uh, either the clarinet mouthpiece or the alto saxophone mouthpiece, and they're a qualified teacher, I'm happy to send them a free mouthpiece, no charge. Uh, it has to be somebody that's within the contiguous United States. Unfortunately, we don't send things to Canada, I'm sorry, or outside the United States just because the uh, the, the cost of mailing has become uh, prohibitive. But anybody within the contiguous United States that wants to try my mouthpiece, please, and uh, feel like they're a qualified teacher, go to that link. You'll see that there's a little form that you have to fill out to tell me a little bit about, you know, your teaching experience and what you're doing. And that's all you need to do. Just a little bit of work and we'll send you a mouthpiece. That's fantastic. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. So if you're looking for a way to find that, just head to clarinet.com and search for the show notes for today's episode. 
I've got one more quick question that just came to me, and then I, I promise I'll let you go. Sure. <laughs> this is kind of coming from a more um, nostalgic perspective, like I was talking about before, but that red rubber that you're making the extensions out of, is there a chance we might see that on the mouthpieces too? or? Uh, probably not, only because from, from a manufacturing standpoint and from a uh, inventory standpoint, I already have so many different models and facings. It's, uh, you know, I have to think about, because I don't sell most of my products direct, I do sell a few, I have to think about the people that are um, doing such a fantastic job of distributing my mouthpieces. And if you have too many products, it's just difficult for them to keep all of that stuff in stock. So, yeah, unfortunately, I would say the short answer is no. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Where can listeners find you online? Uh, my website is www.clarkwphobes.com and uh, just Clark W. Phobes on Facebook as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I know we went a little longer than planned and actually I think this may turn into the longest episode yet. And so I, <laughs> if you've listened this far, listeners, I thank you for your patience. And I, I, uh, I really think that this was a great insight into not only Clark's products, but his sort of working philosophy and his playing and, and everything. And I, I hope that we can find a, a time to, to have you back again. Okay, Sean. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. For free content updates, coupons, and a chance to win giveaways mentioned on the show, please be sure to enter your email address at clarinet.com slash subscribe. The podcast is brought to you in part by the generous support of its listeners. If you'd like to learn how you can help out, please see clarinet.com slash support. Today's episode was brought to you by Dario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. <laughs>